0: Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Rob Goodsward, CEO of Credit Union Australia. Say! Thanks for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation to you with Rob. Before I do so, let me briefly introduce myself. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive, and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions to senior executives and non-executive directors who are looking for a new role. So if we could be of any assistance, please feel free to reach out to me, and I look forward to having a chat to you. Let me get on now and introduce to you Rob Goodesward. Rob Goodsward has had an extensive career in the banking and financial services sectors, both here in Australia and overseas. His current role is CEO of Credit Union Australia. Rob's professional qualifications include a Bachelor of Economics and a Graduate Diploma of Corporate Finance, as well as a range of other leadership-related qualifications. He is currently also a Director of World Vision Australia, and a director of Cuskill. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Rob Goodsward. Okay, so Rob, thanks very much for joining us on the uh, Arate podcast. It's uh, Friday and I'm sure you've got exciting things to get done before your weekend. So we'll probably chat for about an hour today. For the people who are listening into the podcast, perhaps just to begin with, can you have a talk to us about your current range of professional responsibilities?
1: Thank you, Richard, and it's a pleasure being here. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, look forward to our conversation for the next hour. Um, Currently, I'm the CEO of an organisation called Credit Union Australia, Mm -hmm. who I've referred to as uh, CUA. I also, in conjunction with that, sit on a number of boards. Um, There are Mm -hmm. a number of subsidiaries of CUA, like CUA Health, Mm -hmm. CCI, that I sit on their boards. But I'm also on the board of a uh, a payments company Mm -hmm. called Cuscal, based in Sydney. I'm also on the board of a not-for-profit organisation called World Vision.
0: Sure. Which uh, I imagine most people will be familiar with to at least some degree.
1: I hope that's true. are yes. right.
0: Fantastic. And so uh, I'm sure between uh, your CUA responsibilities and your boards, you're a busy man.
1: Yeah, I'm not struggling for things to do. That is correct.
0: <laughs> Very good. And, uh, and for those people who aren't familiar with what um, Credit Union Australia is, give us an idea of the, the size of the business, the number of employees, and this sort of the core business.
1: Sure. Look, in financial services, you've got the four big banks, that everybody knows, you've got the four regional banks, and then you've got a whole lot of what we call foreign banks that have um, representations in Australia. But there's also 92, what we call mutuals. These are credit unions, these are building societies, Mm -hmm. and that union uh, started about 70 years ago. Okay. Um, There's many more in those days, but Mm -hmm. it's down to 92 today. Um, The core difference between a mutual, say, and some of the other ones is that we're actually owned by our members rather than by shareholders. Right. So the organisation is set up that no matter what you do, do, it is actually for the benefit of your members. It's okay. Quite like a cooperative, if I was to put it that way. Sure. Yeah. Uh, of those 92 that are in Australia, CUA actually is the largest as measured by uh, assets. We have about 12 billion dollars in in lending um, that we currently have. We have about a thousand, uh, 900 staff. And about 59 branches along the mainly the east coast of Australia.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: okay and uh, you've been in the role for a little while now um, but let's go right back to where it all began I'm interested mm-hmm. in uh, learning a bit about you know where you were born and your what your mum and dad were doing and your brothers and sisters your early sort of uh, childhood years etc
1: sure um, both my parents are uh, migrants from a country called Holland okay uh, my mother came out with her family mm-hmm. uh, her dad was actually uh, brought out to um, set up the Dutch Reformed Church, so it was a minister of religion. Right. Uh, my dad came out for two years as a bookseller. Okay. Um, when he came out, his sister said, look, I wish to work with this lady in hospital, in a hospital in, in Holland. Can mm-hmm. you give her this gift? hmm After a bit of time, he found this lady, and that's now my mother. So right. He, uh, oh, so
0: uh, uh, your, his sister was um, in Holland, and uh, he inst- she instructed her brother to find this lady in Australia. Correct. Right, okay, got it, Correct. okay. Yeah. And what sort of books did he come here to sell?
1: Well, he, he was actually very specific on theological
0: books. Right, okay. Uh, very
1: you know, Bonhoeffer and those sort of things. So mm-hmm. it's a very um, particular type of uh, okay. bookseller. Okay. And uh, he, he retired at 65. Uh, he managed to go back into that sort of line as well with the, the Lutherans in terms of selling those yes. sort of books. Yes, okay. So that was a couple of years ago now. Right. Um, quite a few years ago. Sure. And as... As best as I can recall, which is not that well, until the age of five, um, probably Dutch was probably my native tongue, Uh and of course you then go to school, Mm -hmm. and a lot of things um, you don't necessarily uh, articulate in English. Mm -hmm. It's from then on that my parents actually used English as the major language at home to uh, ensure that all the kids were actually uh, capable of being English speakers. Uh, I'm the oldest of four boys, mm-hmm. and I'm also the oldest grandchild okay. um, on my uh, mother's side. So I think uh, by being an oldest, that uh, there are some predetermined characteristics that sure. come with that, and yep. as best as I might want to try and reject that or try and defend that, um, it's probably true in my case.
0: Okay. And uh, was it a very religious household? Yes. yeah, right. you
1: know, That's right. Um, so you know, certainly back in the, the 60s, um, it was very... Um, very clear on the rules, like mm-hmm. you, know, you couldn't really drive up, ride a bike on a Sunday, and okay. all these things you couldn't do. Right. Um, the wheels turned a fair bit. Uh, we're going to have my dad's 85th birthday right next week, and uh, we're going out to a restaurant on a Sunday. Then that was un- you never thought about that right. 40 or 50 years ago. But uh-huh. So the, the life's moved on.
0: And so is it that uh, the rules of that particular church have relaxed, or your parents have, you know, become more relaxed about? The way that they practice? Both. Right. Okay, sure. And so as the oldest of four boys, um, uh, you know, I was the oldest too. It's interesting. A lot of the people on this podcast were the oldest. Uh, (laughs) The statistics seem to be true. Uh, You know, what was your childhood like?
1: Very good. Um, A very happy childhood. Yeah. Um, My parents, um, I think, are classic um, migrants. Mm -hmm. They they place a lot of store in education. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, made a lot of sacrifices mm-hmm. for us to to take up that education, and um, I was went to a public uh, state school, but after that, I went to a private secondary school, mm-hmm. and uh, the, my parents, these are the days before credit cards and sure. all those sort of things, yeah. um, actually uh, sacrificed a lot for that to happen, and my mm-hmm. three brothers went to a private school okay. as well, and yeah. it's pretty important uh, for me, after I finished year 12, I went to, into university as well, and mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the things that I think is quite typical mm. of first of, of new migrants that they like to see their, their children sort mm-hmm. of go ahead and be educated. Mm. When my dad was when I went to uni, my dad was actually the uh, the manager of the bookshop at the Trobe University at the time. Okay, and there was a guy who did a PhD on the first generation of Dutch. Can you believe that? Right. So that resonated. Right. Uh, being one of those. Sure. And the statistic I remember this is so this is back in the seventies is that three percent of Dutch migrants, first generation, go on to tertiary. Okay. 97% mm-hmm. didn't. Right. And typically went on to the trades. Right. So I think right from the early days, I was probably a little bit different to sure. a lot of my fellow first generation Dutchies.
0: And so was that more your choice or your parents' desire that you go on to university?
1: I think um, there's probably a couple of things at play there. Certainly I knew uh, that my dad especially would like me mm-hmm. to go on to university, mm-hmm. and in those days, this is not too dissimilar today, you, you always put down your preferences, and yep. you know, when you get one, you are got to make a decision. Yep. But I was also um, landscape gardening at the time, and um, I can vividly recall one of those Melbourne summers where at nine o'clock, it's about 150 degrees in the shade, and I already finished five litres of water, and I thought to myself,
2: <laughs> I'm
1: not going to live the rest of my life doing this. No, so, fair uh, enough. So, <laughs> you know, it was a bit persuasive then sure. to go on and... Uh, do a degree.
0: Right. And so it was landscaping your uh, your uh, bit of a uh, pocket money while you were finishing high school and, and going through uni too? Yes. And right. also
1: when I started at the bank as well. So okay. I did it for many years. Okay. even now, I've, you know, I've got a farm, I do a fair bit of-
0: uh, Yeah, I noticed that. Stuff
1: hanging onto that stuff. Right.
0: And uh, out of interest, what did the other three brothers end up doing for their careers?
1: Uh, one of my brothers became a mechanic.
0: Okay. And at the
1: age of 50 joined the army. Right. Um, so that was a bit of a change. Sure. The second one went on and got an accounting degree, but he's okay. spent the last 20 years uh, working uh, with World Vision around the world at um, places that uh, have the hot spots in need of help. Yeah. And my youngest brother um, finished secondary school and then went into um, the timber right. area, so okay. working for Bowen's Timbers.
0: Right. So uh, quite a diverse, uh, you yeah, know, Christmases must be some interesting conversation. Yeah, that's really true. <laughs> and what was it about economics that attracted you to want to study that?
1: Yeah. Um, I would have to say nothing okay. would be the truthful answer to it. I right. got in. There's yep. also another truthful answer. Right. Um, during year twelve, um, I contracted um, glandular fever. Right. And uh, basically missed a term with mm. glandular fever. My mum's a nurse. Infectious right. diseases nurse. So, okay. Um, so I spent my time at home. To say that I got through year twelve mm. on the bones of my backside would yep. be the understatement. So yeah. It's probably the only degree I could get into. Okay. Um, I actually didn't even know what economics was. Right. Um, So I went. There's 900 of us started uh, that year. Yeah. And uh, it seemed to be of interest. Um, I could do it. Mm -hmm. So I just went ahead and did it. Right. And it wasn't because, you know, I was particularly fired up by economics. Mm -hmm. I might contrast that, if you don't mind, with um, ultimately joining uh, ANZ and then thinking to myself, I wonder if... I actually did something that really resonated with me, whether the outcomes would be any better. Okay. So I did a postgraduate in corporate finance right, with distinction. Yes. And the difference with that was it, it actually resonated with what I was doing
0: at work. Right.
1: Whereas having been at school and studying German and all these sort of things sure. was an academic exercise. Yeah. And to a degree, so was economics.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but until it actually resonated, you know, I probably didn't excel to the point, or throw myself into it in mm-hmm. a better way. Mm. The irony with that, of course, is... There is a subliminal way that I actually think today that I can trace back to my economic training. Right. Everything for me comes back to equilibrium.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Well, where does that come from? Sure. <laughs> it's 101 economics.
0: Right. I actually did a Bachelor of Commerce and in the first year you had to do a bit of economics, a bit of accounting, a bit of marketing, a bit of HR and I've got to be honest and say economics was my least <laughs> favoured. Uh, I very quickly decided marketing and HR were more exciting for me. but. Um, Different horses, different courses, yeah, and weird. cricket was quite a big part of your early life too, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. When I was, so I went to Luther College in my secondary school, and um, the teacher that was really into cricket, both his sons played state cricket um, for uh, Victoria and South Australia. Mm-hmm. So he was also a classic. So you know, the idea when you look at today, you can see the guys playing Twenty Twenty or One Dayers. They are actually using their eye. Hand coordination. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the way we were taught was classic: bat and you know, pad together, yep. elbow up. Right. Um, so that was quite a chore, and sure. you, actually, you actually carried that because you were rewarded for, for batting like that. Mm-hmm. And so I started at secondary school, and you know, it seemed to work. So okay. you get the team, and yep. uh, then played for local teams. And then 1987, um, I was transferred to the Middle East with the bank because had bought Grinley's in those days. Right. And the idea was to infiltrate all these outposts okay. with, with Australians. And um, I just happened to be walking past HR one day and someone said, you want to go to the Middle East? And I said, yeah, I'll be up for that. <laughs> so I went to the Middle East. Were you married at the time? Yeah, yeah I had right. two kids. Okay, wow. So I went to the Middle East in my late 20s. And I can still recall at my welcome party, mm-hmm. a couple of Englishmen said, um, so I hear you play cricket. Right. I said, yeah, I play cricket. Will you come and join the cricket club? Right. You play cricket in Bahrain? Yeah, we play cricket in bar, eh? I said, all right, yeah. So, uh, so in the Middle East, you, you, you have Friday and Thursday afternoon, Friday off. And mm-hmm. The week starts on Saturday, goes through to right. The Thursday, right? And we play it on the Friday. So you go down to the cricket pitch. And my very first day, you know, I've been in the country less than a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we win the toss and we bat. And he says, what do you do? And I said, oh, I, I bat a bit. And he goes, what do you do? And I said, well, I open. I said, come on then, put the pads on. Right. And I've walked into this sand pit, just sand right and he said um, look up in the sky I look up in the sky he said what do you see i see nothing he Goes, that's it never forget that okay and he walked to the middle and he goes do you want a face i said yeah i want my face he said fine so it took took guard right it's a concrete pitch with matting right if you ever play on matting the only thing you know for certain is no matter how good a cricketer you are you've got no idea what the ball's going to do right right, right? The bowler was on the boundary. The keeper was so far behind me, I had to ask him, where is the bowler? And it was 100 degrees. He was stinking on. I all right. like, this should be easy, right? To this day, I had no idea what happened to the ball. I heard it. Right. I didn't even have time to, to lift my bat. And all I heard him was, bat- bowling, bowling, you know, <laughs> behind me. i go, oh dear. <laughs> so I've walked down the pitch. So when you play on turf, you sort of push the thing. Yeah, which, yeah. This is matting, right? right? So I've walked down there and... And David comes from the other side. He said, did you see the ball? I said, no. He goes, either do we. We blame the sky.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that was the reference. Yeah. So I've got a cricket
1: pitch in my backyard at home in Melbourne. Okay. With a bowling machine. And the only thing I do notice is that the mind can play games much better than the reality of my eye-hand coordination today.
0: (laughs) And how do you think uh, that's... uh, transposed into your professional life are there any things that you can think about in terms of the way that you lead or how you uh, conduct yourself uh, in business that you look back and you say oh that's a trait that I've brought across from playing cricket
1: I think the the, the biggest one and cricket in particular as I say opposed to footy or soccer mm-hmm. is that when you're on the pitch and you're facing that first ball you're it Right, right. There's there's no one there. Yeah. You you are, <laughs> the bat goes through. You're out. You're gone. Um, and the idea that you've got some guy in the Middle East bowling these balls that you cannot see, mm. right? You've got no idea what's going on. Um, and yet, you know, I'm hanging around. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get me. Yeah. There's a form of there's a form of resilience. There's a form of um, uh, tenacity. to you know, make yeah. Tenacity is a good word. Thank mm-hmm. you. And then the other thing about it is particularly when you see the wickets fallen at the other end, mm. right? How, how is it that you can encourage these guys that the last bloke was just lucky? Don't worry about that. Just keep your eye on the ball and sure. you'll be fine as well, which yeah. is what, what David did for me, right? Right. Um, and I think, you know, those, those sort of things are exactly the same here. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes being a CEO can be very lonely. Mm. Um, you've got to make sure you hang on to your self-belief mm-hmm. and the tenacity that's needed. Mm. Um, and then you've got teams that sit in this room, actually, you've got to encourage people along and say, don't worry about the fact that we've actually lost that game. (laughs) You know, we've got this other one. Sure.
0: Okay. Oh, well, that's uh, uh, a good insight. And we'll talk more about that a little later, I'm sure. So you worked for ANZ from leaving university uh, for quite a period of time.
1: So back in those days when we were at uni, a lot of employers would pitch up their tents in the Mm -hmm. last semester. And... um, I was fortunate to uh, have a couple of interviews, and the first one was with another bank who remained nameless, and they explained to me that when you join as a graduate, you do this for five years and you go up a level. You do that for five years, you go up a level. Mm. And I sort of walked out of there thinking, "Wow, that's not that inspiring, but at least mm. they're a job, you mm. know? And one of my mates who we did the course together, he said, oh, I just got a job at Ainsley, bet you you can't, so right. bet you I can. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in there and he, uh, he said to me, so what do you want to do with life? I said, I want to travel. Right. So, where do you want to go? I so said, I want to go to America. Because everyone wants to go to America, right? Right. And he goes, um, what do you want to do? I so I'm happy to work for ANZ in America. He said, how would you like to run it? I said, yeah, I'll be in that. He said, within five years. So right. right. I'll sign. So I signed. Um, never worked for ANZ in America,
0: just so right. it's clear. Yeah, yeah. But did go offshore for seven but he, years. Uh, he uh, had a nice uh, carrot there to uh, to get you on the hook.
1: Yeah. You should know that I never believed him. Right. You know? I mean, it's just a, yeah, right, mate.
0: Right. Yeah, so. But the, it was the very traditional, do your job, keep your head down, uh, job for life uh, that you it was almost, you were resisting that so the ANZ became such a more attractive option purely because it wasn't what the other bank were offering. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. I think the other thing
1: I would say too, and I say this in hindsight, I didn't know it at the time. But, sure. You know, graduates were quite a new species. Mm-hmm. Um, I might have been in the first or second intake, gains okay. that I've ever taken. Right. And um, there was a lot of resentment mm-hmm. because these guys were modern right? Mm-hmm. The, the true bankers have gone up through the ranks. Yeah. And you went on a four-week course. So in those days, it was four weeks. This is what a debit, this is what a credit is, blah, blah, blah. And at yeah. the end of it, they gave you this envelope. Where you had to go to work the next Monday, and uh,
0: oh, it, it had where you were designated to. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Okay.
1: So I've opened mine up and it says, "Oh, congratulations! On Monday you start in the economics department." Right. And I was gobsmacked. You yeah, know, I went up to the guy and said, but "What's this economics department? Mm-hmm. So you got an economics degree?" I said, "Mate, I don't know anything about banking. You should put me out to be a teller." He goes, "No, no. You then know, graduates aren't tellers." I said, "Well, this one will be." He goes, "No, mate. You're going into economics." Said, "All right, I think it might be time for me to leave because I cannot work here if I do not know what banking is." Right. So they had a little bit of a huddle, and the next thing you know, I was posted to Croydon branch as a lending clerk.
0: Right. Sent <laughs> so anyway, out. Was it a bit of sort of a punishment? Do you think? Or? No, no. I was
1: quite happy to be out east, right. okay. and it was the closest they could get to not making me a teller. Right. Um, and it was great. You know, mm-hmm. It was wonderful mm-hmm. um, understanding how you do lending and all those sort of things. And i got myself onto the counter that was always my aim to Mm -hmm. to look at customers to balance the books to do the escorts to actually say you know i actually know a little bit about branch banking
0: right right?
1: that was back in in 81 i always thought i would join the bank on a five-year horizon Mm -hmm. if i don't go offshore within those five years i'll have a look what the other options are Mm -hmm. i went offshore in six it'd
0: be interesting if you could have access to your hr file and go all the way back to when you very first started and see what comments were made. We've just employed this guy, and, you know, for his first four weeks, he's already causing trouble. <laughs> um, and so uh, so obviously uh, Middle East must have been a really amazing experience um, uh, because there was probably a lot less uh, awareness and visibility of the Middle East in Australia then um, than there is now.
1: Yeah, other than the fact that it was right in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war. Mm. So it did have a fairly high... Um, don't no-go no, no go zone right. sort of view. I and mean, okay. Australians are quite protected about a lot of the things that happen sure. in the Middle East. And we tend to get more of the alarmicides and the day-to-day stuff mm-hmm. that, that sort of feed our psyche about what's going on. And I also, that there was a concern about a breakout. I can't actually remember what it was, some disease. and So I actually went on my own initially. Um, and the disease so I was actually located to a town down south. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still recall seeing the American frigate at port with a big hole on the side of it because okay. it hit some of the floating mines in the in, yeah, in the, yeah. in the, uh, in the uh, Gulf there, but you know all of the stereotypes like you can't drink, you can't do this, you can't do that. It just wasn't our experience. Right? Okay. My wife could drive. Um, right. you needed a license to buy a booze and that sort of stuff. But you know, working with in this particular case Arabs, mm-hmm. working with many people from the subcontinent. It one of the best life journeys you'll ever get, sure. working with these different people. and You know, you often wonder if, I was very fortunate, I was born in, in Melbourne from two migrants, but could easily have been born from a family of Arabs and lived in the desert, right? Yeah. So, um, and that's when you actually get to see the commonality of humanity, irrespective mm-hmm. of religious beliefs or whatever the mm-hmm. case might be.
0: Okay. And so what was it that brought you back to Australia then?
1: In those days, ANZ was very particular that you only went away for a short period of time. Okay. There was a great clique of Grinley's guys whose life was being expatriates. Right. And ANZ was against that. They saw right. that as being feathering your own nets for the financial outcomes. Okay, yeah. And so you could only do it a short period of time. Mm-hmm. We had a certain amount of, um, you know, mourning for the loss of connection to family. It's yes. the first time someone had actually gone away, and it wasn't as though we went up the road. Sure. We <laughs> were gone for about 15 hours' flight. So. Yeah. Um, so we were pretty keen to come home as well. Okay. Um,
0: but you were there for some time?
1: I was only there for two years. Oh, two years. Okay. Um, but we came back, I think we were very happy for the first year and we got itchy feet again. Right. And we went again off for five years after
0: that. Oh, okay. So that's, I knew you'd mentioned seven earlier. Yeah. So right, okay.
1: So we went to Solomon Islands in the Pacific. Right. And then back to the Middle East.
0: Okay. And what sort of roles did you hold over that period of time?
1: So in the second stint, both of them were running countries. Okay. So I, was, I ran the Solomon Islands for, mm-hmm. for ANZ, which is a branch network. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Oman and, and ran the business there, but I ended up selling it um, to the local member there and set up a new bank for him and then come home.
0: Right. And that was uh, when you uh, came back for the last time That's to right. Australia. Yeah. right, yep. Right, okay. And so how did your career uh, unfold from there?
1: Um, fortunately for me, I mean, I came, went straight back into a job and, you know, in those days, returning expatriates found it difficult to acclimatise back mm-hmm. into the roles and the organisations. But I was very fortunate. Um, I ran for, went straight to corporate, and I guess the the big move for me after that is I finally um, went back into went into head office right. in, in the early two thousands. Okay, I was a chief operating officer for a new business that was set up called small to medium business. That gave me a lot of exposure across the organisation, irrespective of what particular post you were doing, to get an idea of how an organisation the size of ANZ actually worked. And it wasn't a long stint, and I was then appointed basically the Deputy CEO of the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And that was my real first opportunity to, um, other than running the countries where I'd been in before, Mm -hmm. to actually then make some fairly good strategic calls and Mm -hmm. get involved in Mm -hmm. Asia and uh,
0: the Pacific. And so, roughly, how old would you have been then?
1: In those roles, um, it's probably early forties. Right. 40s. So I imagine,
0: you know, in a uh, what is a big four bank, uh, getting to that level of responsibility, that would be regarded as quite a young age, I imagine.
1: Yeah, I, I do recall, and I think it was part of the psyche. Typically, when you are a grad, mm-hmm. you always seem to be one of the youngest. Okay. Um, yeah. I have to say the wheels completely turned now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tend to find myself as one of the oldest, right? But certainly in the uh, the early two thousand, yeah, that'd be right.
0: And so, what do you think were some of the uh, traits that you were demonstrating that enabled you to be um, offered this responsibility, very senior responsibility, um, as compared to your peers?
1: Um, well, first of all, I think I was very energised in working with people. Okay, a lot of the people that. Um, that end up leaving A and Z um, left because they felt themselves energised in more technical or other areas. I mm-hmm. was always very... So in a Maya Briggs sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm at the 98th percentile for extroversion. Right. So, you know, I'm quite up for wandering around up and down the office, talking to people, working out what's going on. And sure. so those relational sort of things seem to work. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, um, I shortly closely to there, I did the hay... Um, intrinsic motivator, yeah. and um, in that particular time, I actually found out that achievement was one of my highest motivators. Mm-hmm. And it's always, I always appreciated the way the opportunities the bank gave you mm-hmm. for your self-development, mm-hmm. and I found that that actually made a commitment to the organisation as mm-hmm. well, but you learn more about yourself and your impact on others, I believe you'd be a lot more successful. So,
0: I um, note from your CV that you've obviously... Uh, done quite a range of uh, fairly significant um, ongoing professional development courses, um, both in Australia and overseas as well. So uh, would you say that that played a big part in enabling you to achieve the sort of roles that you have?
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. Mm -hmm. I think one of my earlier recollections was this notion of frame of reference. Okay. So what does someone use to make decisions mhm and, and invariably for a lot of people that would be experience mhm yeah and for some people it might only just be experience uh, education plays a bit in that um, overseas experiences doing different things they all help form your reading you know mm-hmm. all these things help my ingoing belief is that the wider your frame of reference is the more likely you are to adopt or adapt to different sort of areas mhm and so I was very fortunate to, to spend a year doing the Williamson Leadership Program, which is 32 people from completely different walks of life um, meeting in, in Melbourne um, every Wednesday. Right. And just doing the whole ambit. So we're ending up on a farm, and, or you're ending up in a drug centre, or you're ending up in the state library centre, all these different ways, and uh-huh. you get exposure to all these different people mm-hmm. to try and help you. Because uh, in a lot of ways, banking can be insular.
0: And so was that you were invited to participate uh, and uh, it's obviously quite a close group if there's only 30 people. That's right, yeah.
1: So the bank, you know, ANZ put my name forward. Right. As they saw it as another good capability for future leaders Mm -hmm. in terms of doing that. And in addition, you know, I was fortunate to do the senior management program at Melbourne Business School. Yes. And then London Business School Mm. in the mid-2000s. And then... um, just to, to speak about the education side, when, um, when Mike Smith joined ANZ, his observation was that in his previous company, they actually took a lot of people who had been in running businesses and putting them into enablement roles. Mm-hmm. And you know enablement roles might be HR or mm-hmm. risk. Okay. So it was therefore determined that I would go into risk. Right. Now, in support of doing that, they then sent me to Wharton in the U.S. to do a risk course. I mean, mm-hmm. It's priceless, that type of sort of opportunities, right? And, and when
0: that was put on the table to you, I mean, uh, having really had a sort of a role in you were leading uh, countries and leading businesses and having that full range of responsibility, did you see going into a risk-specific role as sexy or was it you know, were you uh, excited about it or was it taking you away from what you really wanted to do?
1: Yeah, it took me away. Right. What I really wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I will be flippant about that today, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I always wonder what I did wrong.
0: Right. It was. Why, yeah. why
1: would you put me into risk? Right. And so I organised a global financial crisis to make the life a bit more exciting. Right? <laughs> but I would say, you know, broadly speaking, that in my time at ANZ, the most intellectually challenging time was the time in
0: risk. Right.
1: And I am so appreciative of that time. Okay. In hindsight.
0: Yeah. So you don't look at it and say, they got it wrong. No. Right.
1: No, no. I mean, it's, you know, why is it that I was given the opportunity to experience those things Mm -hmm. and then how it's leveraged? Sure. Sitting in these jobs now or as chair of the audit committee at World Vision, Mm -hmm. I tell you what, having done a risk role is actually very helpful. I bet. (laughs) From a technical point of view. Sure. Even from a... Imagine being in that function yourself because mm-hmm. people that only ever spent their time in the business side mm-hmm. don't necessarily respect the enablement roles. Right. Um, and I think you know, I'd probably bring that balance because of the experience.
0: Yeah, I certainly see that when I'm recruiting uh, at a C suite level all of the time. You, you have your operational uh, core business unit leaders who can often have a very low opinion of the relevance and value of these. Um, uh, more corporate services type roles, so so I, I uh, that is not uncommon. Yeah, but mm. it is
1: regrettable because sure you need to bring not only different characteristics to the table, but different disciplines as well, and they need to be respected. Mm-hmm. And then you, know, you you will gain
0: respect yourself mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. So um, what was it then, uh, Rob, that finally uh, took you away from the AMZ?
1: Look, I mean, I was there for thirty years, right? That's a that's a decent. Um, Part. So it was always, particularly when you go to courses like Williamson and the, uh, the London Business School, a lot of people uh, made decisions to move to other organisations and it seemed to be okay. Mm-hmm. And when I joined ANZ, the idea was you join for life. Yeah. Um, I could see that if you're ever going to make a change, you better make it now, otherwise it might get too late. The second part of it is that... Um, I couldn't really see where else I could go in ANZ. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, they were fantastic about it all and they had some thoughts around that, but probably wasn't really what sort of flooded my boat or rotated my crops. Right. Um, And so I think after 30 years of doing something, the opportunity to take a sabbatical and to think about what else you could do and where else you're supposed to be was actually a very rare opportunity that Mm. that I was looking forward to. Mm I was hoping to take somewhere between six to 12 months off uh-huh. and uh, yeah, have a view about what could I do with myself and how would it happen and uh, whatever happened would happen.
0: So you resigned without a role to go to? Correct. Right, okay, and uh, and what was the intention for that six to 12 months time? Were you you gonna travel or you know, spend time on the farm or, or what was uh, gonna occupy your time?
2: I don't
1: know, I saw you had this notion it'd be great to play golf all the time. Right. Um, Definitely the farm yeah. by them was actually a real part and mm-hmm. I always have a view that living permanently a farm forever will never be an option for me mm-hmm. um, but spending a large load of time was actually quite uh, sort of attractive for me. Okay. But you know when you're in a family with kids and a wife and all those sort of things they've got lives as well they just can't sort of pick up their bat and ball and move up to the farm sure. so you know end up doing some of those things on my own. Um, The other thing it gave me a chance to do, too, is to use the opportunity to sort of broaden my contacts. And uh, I spent a lot of time speaking to CEOs and chairmen and Mm -hmm. headhunters about, you know, it's just because you've been with the bank for 30 years, and Mm. whilst you might be, you know, quite confident about what you can do, Mm it doesn't mean that anyone else is.
0: So did you go and seek out CEOs from non-banking industries? Uh, to have a chat to them about, uh, you know, what's next for me.
1: Yeah, probably not what's next for me, more from the point of view is, tell me how would you view someone with this sort of background? Right. And what would someone with this sort of background need to do to tweak your interest?
0: Right, and without necessarily talking about the individuals, what were some of the kinds of people that you were having that conversation with? Headhunters. Right.
1: Um, CEOs across the industry, so be that agri, be that fast-moving consumer goods, be that manufacturing, be that importer, exporters, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even retailing. Interesting. Yeah,
0: so you get a sense. Right. And what did you take away from those conversations? What resonated with you?
1: People find it easier to typecast you based on what you've done rather than what you want to do.
0: yeah. And I'm speaking from the headhunting profession. Headhunters are good at putting square pegs in square holes. Yep. That's what they're paid to do. But uh, when I'm um, coaching senior executives, if you want to move outside of industry or outside of role family, you're far more likely to get that role through what we call the hidden job market than through a traditional recruitment avenue for that very reason. I agree. Yeah.
1: I mean, that, this is 2010 when I left ANZ in in the February. I think by the by the end of March, certainly by April, I was onto my fourth conversation as the possibility of a CEO of an insurance company. Right, and and I fought hard in that one about I've never worked in insurance. Yep. And for as much as I fought against it, they also then kept saying we understand that mm-hmm. we're still interested. Okay. And when it came down to it. Um, the advice I had received is they found it hard to split the two candidates, but they went with the other because mm-hmm. they'd spent a year in insurance. Mm, and sure. you think they're going, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we could have saved ourselves a lot of trouble if we'd had that conversation I, a while ago.
1: I think they're genuine. Yeah. I mean, the irony with that particular opportunity is that I then went to rural finance and you know, when we sold rural finance, they were back on the market looking for a
0: CEO again. Right and um the same so insurance company same insurance right company. okay
1: now that had to change by then of um, personnel um and they rang me and they said know, this is that job for you sure um but we never actually went to another interview after that mm-hmm. and got knocked out because they actually had to be honest with themselves and mm-hmm. say we couldn't imagine someone running this insurance business who hasn't got insurance right so that was even more disappointing, but it was yeah. quickly, you know, put sure. out. <laughs>
0: yep, fair enough. And so what was it about uh, the Rural Finance Corporation that it tra- attracted you to take on that role?
1: I think the um, the initial... So if I was to contrast that with the insurance, because at the same time I was going through the insurance mm-hmm. one, I ended up with 12 different meetings in that insurance business. Right. I remember walking into the... So I was interviewed by the headhunter, obviously, but then I met the board. hmm And I remember walking out of the meeting and I said to my wife, do you know what? I got more energy and more enthusiasm for that two-hour meeting I've just been through than the previous 12. Right. Um, And they didn't muck around. They just bang. There was the offer. So it was pretty good.
0: And tell us a little bit about that business.
1: Um, Look, it was owned by the Victorian government. Okay. It was initially set up to assist those in distress, be Mm -hmm. they floods or fires or Mm -hmm. um, whatever the case might be. But while they were doing that, and they had a 70-year history as well, and while they were doing that, they also ran a, a lending book to primary producers, okay. so farmers. Um, so that was a magnificent opportunity to, uh, to run a very small organisation, about mm-hmm. 120 people and about 12 offices across Victoria and a, a lending book of 1700000000 billion. Mm-hmm. I think the record still stands, but they never had one bad debt. Wow. And, you know, you go to most financial organisations with an agri book. Absolutely. You do get bad sure. debts. But the way these guys did agri was um, pretty good. Mm-hmm. And uh, they understood the risks. They took risks that commercial banks wouldn't have taken because mm-hmm. they understood agri.
0: Okay. Um,
1: ultimately, you know, the Victorian government took the view that we we could actually be using the assets that this organisation is using in lending. We mm-hmm. could use those for other... Government requirements, mm-hmm. uh, because there were other people in the market that could actually be doing that lending, and so, you know, we sold it to Bendigo Bank.
0: Okay, and at that point, uh, Credit Union Australia.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was very short. I mean, I think um, yeah, we finished in July. The first I came across Credit Union Australia was probably the August. Mm-hmm. I went through a bit of a, a situation then when I had to work out whether or not I wanted to be an executive or a non-executive. Okay. Um, and ultimately, a number of my friends who went into NEDs about mm-hmm. the same age, mm-hmm. their, their litmus test was do you have the energy? Do you have the energy to do or the energy to govern? Yes. And I still had the energy to do. So yeah. it was pretty clear that all, and for me, the issue then was do you want to go into ag for me, my mm-hmm. you own know, self talk? Was it mm-hmm. agri or finance? Mm-hmm. Or can you bring them together? Sure. And then yeah, there was a number of opportunities that, that, that came up. But It's the first time I've really come across the mutual sector right. as an option. Uh-huh. Um, and then when the biggest one says, listen, we'd like to talk to you,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you think, oh, I'd like to talk to you too. Sure.
0: <laughs> and uh, it also uh, meant a move to sunny Queensland.
1: Yeah. Um, the board was pretty clear that uh, head office was in, in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And so the ticket to the dance was that you'd move to Queensland. Yeah. If if they had been less um, strict about that, mm-hmm. then there would have been other applicants for the job, and sure. it's anyone's guess who would have got the job in that yep. instant. Yep. In this particular case, it, it mm. worked in our favour. Mm.
0: And I know your kids are growing. Yeah. So did they come up with you or?
1: No. Um, an advice to any listener: if you ever want to become an empty nester, you leave.
0: Right. <laughs> yes, I've heard that advice many times. Yeah. So
1: okay. um, so yeah, our oldest son um, is married with two kids. My daughter is married and having a kid. My youngest daughter comes up on a regular basis. Right, but you know, still got elderly parents, um, and my my kids are having kids. Sure, it's hard to be away from that. Yeah, so we're fortunate that CUA has opportunities across the eastern Mm -hmm. coast. So I'm in Sydney and Melbourne at least once a month. Mm -hmm. Good opportunity to go. Okay,
0: sure. And so, when did you actually start in the role? 2nd of February this year. Right, okay. So we're almost at the 12-month mm-hmm. mark. So what, um, when you stepped into this role, what was the mandate? What What were you being employed to do?
1: I think the, um, the primary one was that you've got some really strong retail banking experience and um, we really would like to see the, the operating part of retail banking mm-hmm. and how you run an organisation. Um, at a higher level than what it was now. Okay. My predecessor had done a magnificent job in enabling the organisation to have a few foundational bits in place, like Mm -hmm. a core banking platform. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, anybody that is going to take on the replacement of a core banking platform really don't like themselves that much. Mm. They are huge exercises, Mm -hmm. And I'm so happy that he handed that over, finished. Right. And that then presented an opportunity Mm -hmm. to say, well, now you've got that core capability. How is it that you can actually then run a banking situation around
0: that? How do you leverage
1: it? Yeah. And so I'd run, you know, obviously banking in Australia, run it in the the Pacific, run Mm -hmm. it in the Middle East. It's actually quite a a thing that I know fairly well. Mm -hmm. So to do that here and to get the operating rhythm nice is great. And we're not there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've still got a bit to go, but... I think we're probably a little bit more conscious about what we have to do than mm-hmm. maybe when I started 12 months ago.
0: Okay, and um, a year into the role, if you had to hang your hat on a particular key achievement in that year that you're most proud of, what would that be?
1: I think um, it'd be feedback from the board that is very encouraging. Okay. You know, there's. I remember once I went to a Australian Institute of Company Directors course, and uh, they were talking about the relationship between the CEO and the chair. Yeah. And, uh, the chair was stood up there and he says, CEO has my full support until the day he doesn't. Right. (laughs) Right? So it actually, it is actually... um,
0: That's what your chair said? No, no, this this is that business
1: in a course. But the confidence for which you can go about your business, Mm. knowing that you have that support Mm. and seeing it, Palpably seeing that support mm-hmm. really helps, and I think um, that that has that has grown from where it was twelve months ago, and I think that actually enables our executives to um, to be a lot freer and to go about their job with a greater confidence mm-hmm. than than earlier, mm-hmm. and I think that's a, a remarkable. Um, outcome that was started before i joined but sure. which just been built on and just okay. you know it's just the momentum has grown yeah uh, if i was to quote jim collins the flywheel right, right. it's it actually working quite well the other thing that um and again i'd love to say that i it happened because i i'm here but mm-hmm. the reality is it happened and i happened to be here mm-hmm. which was the the growth of the organization I mean, that mm-hmm. was well in place before i got here and and the fact that it's actually been achieved is actually quite remarkable um
0: when you say achieved, do you mean the goals set have been achieved or just the actual growth itself? Both. Right, okay.
1: So, you know, the, to have growth of 15% in your lending or your deposits in, in 12 months in any mm-hmm. financial organisation in Australia, it's quite a remarkable outcome.
0: And and what do you put that down to? How is that uh, able to be achieved?
1: The core banking platform that was in place before I joined actually mm-hmm. gave you the capability to have um, more discerning products. Okay. Um, the ability of the staff to step up and to be more engaged around selling these things, Mm -hmm. monitoring them, encouraging them, training, talking about it a bit more, and then the hidden belief that, you know, we're here for a purpose, this is in line with that purpose. Um, Yeah, obviously attracted people.
0: Okay, great. And um, you worked for AMC for a long time. You uh, got to the point where you were in the C-suite in your uh, chief Uh, risk role. And then when you made the transition to becoming a fully-fledged CEO of Rural Finance Corporation, at that point, and I'm interested in asking the same question about stepping then up to to Credit Union Australia, but what did you notice about yourself in terms of some of the gaps uh, in your attributes or leadership style that you needed to uh, embrace in order to go from you know, a, a a large role, but into your first full CEO role.
1: In in a context of ANZ where there is forty or fifty thousand people, mm-hmm. um, they have this notion of group one, group two, group three, right? So I was a group one for nine years. Right. That, that's that's it, right. That's 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 a great place to be and yep. that carries a certain kudos and accountability that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in one of the last jobs that I was running there, I mean, I think, you know, I had 3,000 staff and $15 billion under management. Mm-hmm. And then you move into an organisation at 120 staff. Sure. And 1.7 billion. The, the difference is you don't have the support and the innate up underpinning mm-hmm. of the organisation. You're it. Yeah. Right? It's all... There's no plugs. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to a degree, I had been groomed for that when running countries in the Solomon Islands and the yes. Oman, where yeah. in essence you're doing the same thing anyway. So mm-hmm. that, that, that wasn't a great shock for me. Okay. But I know a lot of headhunters say that because you've been a Group 1 at ANZ for nine years, doesn't necessarily mean you can step into some sort of highfalutin CEO role and run mm-hmm. with it because mm-hmm. to a degree you're an unproven entity when you're actually being comforted by the, 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 an organisation. Sure you do have skills that those organisations give you that is unconscious. Mm-hmm. You don't notice until mm-hmm. you're in an environment where it's are not there. Mm-hmm. And so moving into a place like rural finance, um, that's not there. Right. You? You, you, you you have 120 staff. Yep. Everything comes back to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so there is a certain amount of pragmatism that mm-hmm. comes with that. Okay. And then you're reporting to a board. Yep. And for as much as you may have ended up doing PowerPoint presentations to the board of ANZ, Mm -hmm. right? It is different when you are the CEO reporting to the board. And, you know, board management, stakeholder management, and um, it's it's a completely different perspective than Mm -hmm. when you've got an ANZ support attached to it. Even the public persona. Mm -hmm. ANZ was fantastic in in supporting you to do public um, speeches and um, representing yourself within the norms and protocols of an ANZ, and, and you go to a, a government-owned thing, and mm-hmm. y- you've got to do it all yourself. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of um, um, working on your own around those sort of things, and it's mm-hmm. a much lonelier place because mm-hmm. you're it, right? Whereas with ANZ, at least there was a, you know, the top 100. There's 100 in there. Mm-hmm.
0: So. And so what have you noticed has been the change uh, in now stepping into a much bigger CEO role? What are, what are some of the, uh, you know, the uh, lessons learned in this first 12 months
1: the biggest one for me has been uh, the management and working with the board. Right. Um, when I first went to rural finance, I I would deal and respond with it as a senior executive at ANZ. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a while for me to to actually become quite comfortable that what I was doing was was okay, and when I was challenged, it wasn't a personal attack. Yes, it was directors doing their fiduciary responsibility mm-hmm. of asking questions. That takes time. Sure. In this role, um, that that is a capability that I've got that that I don't necessarily feel I have to defend, or I, I, I'm I'm actually being called out as not doing my job well enough. Uh, this is more about you know how you can actually use advisors to get much better outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I call that a level of maturity Mm -hmm. of um, a CEO in terms of the way they interact.
0: Okay. So for people who are perhaps listening to this podcast that are looking at uh, stepping up into their first CEO role, particularly in relation to how to work best with a chair and work best with a board, what would be some of the things that you'd advise them uh, to keep in mind?
1: The first one is self-awareness. Okay. Um, For as much as you may have made your own hay and been successful in a large corporate. Mm -hmm. You need to respect the fact that you're now in a completely different environment that might actually look at success differently, Mm -hmm. that might actually look at um, what they want from you differently. Mm -hmm. And your ability to read that and to read your impact on Mm -hmm. that is in a totally different level. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I actually think that that self-awareness such a critical um, skill for a long-term sustainable business. Mm-hmm. A little bit different in a crisis. In a crisis, you're a lot more directional. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a long-term, you know, and again, you know, the collaborative nature of what's going on means that you need to understand your impact. Mm-hmm. Now, we've all got blind spots, right? So, and I'm one of those. <laughs> um, the other one that, that comes through from that is the ability to bind the senior executive team and to act as the touch rod or the lightning rod for the organisation about what is culturally acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're at ANZ and we we brought in that um, that program under John McFarlane called Breakout. That started at the senior management level and then filtered through the organisation. I was very fortunate. I was one of the very first pilot programs of that.
0: And what was that all about, Breakout?
1: In essence. It was steeped in the belief that when you and I are talking to each other there is a certain energy between us. Mm -hmm. If there is any form of resentment that energy is blocked Mm -hmm. and that that blockage could come because you behave as somebody else in Mm -hmm. the business that you believe is the right person to behave as or it might be that you resented about something that I've said. Sure. Breakout was designed to free that up.
0: Interesting. And
1: the idea that you know I'd say well Richard um, you and I need to have a conversation a withhold conversation. Straight away you know Mm -hmm. that there's something that's not right. Yep. I think there is something that's not right. Yep. And then I'd say, look, when you said this, yeah, you know, I right. didn't like it for these reasons. And then you'd need the maturity to um, to say, okay, thank you for the feedback, mm-hmm. without standing standing up and reaching across the table and punching you next week. But to say, so tell me more about that. So it's a curiosity about what it's about. Right. I found it particularly um, liberating, actually. Okay. Because I did have a predetermined position about what a banker should behave and be like and you you almost figuratively put that suit on when you went through the the front door in the mornings yeah and the idea that you could just be yourself Mm. and you don't have to worry about that you're you're permitted to be like that Mm. um, was actually quite liberating Mm. now for many people that they don't know what you're talking about right i'm always myself so what are you talking about yeah i think maybe to those what i would say to them is do you Mm. do you really know yourself do you really know your impact on Mm. people and how do you check in to know what your impact is? Mm. Because there's a lot of people that are so full of their own self-belief that they will not lead people and create the fellowship that's needed when you're not protected by the size of the bigger and, organization.
0: And yet I imagine there would be a lot of people that would be extremely resistant to having those kind of conversations in the workplace, particularly in quite a traditional environment like a large bank. Um, uh, that requires... Uh, you know, a certain amount of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, vulnerability, Yep. Uh, that a lot of corporates would just, they wouldn't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole.
1: No, and I think, you know, a, a criticism in the early days is, people that are willing to be vulnerable, mm. you can never predict the outcomes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we, we had circumstances where people used that journey to leave the organisation and go do something else. Sure. We had those situations where they left their spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, it just brought things to the surface mm. that you know I don't know that we we're necessarily ready for.
2: Mm. It's
0: interesting. I interviewed Ray Weeks for the podcast. Do you mm. know Ray? And uh, you know we were talking about what are some of the key lessons that he's learned, particularly in his later career. And his big one was to be much more vulnerable. Mm. Uh, so it's I find these discussions really fascinating because of the way. Uh, there are little linkages between what people say. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a lot of fundamental truths to how to be a great leader and uh, uh, vulnerability, another one that's been mentioned many times, is curiosity. Um, and it sounds like you're a very curious fellow, uh, particularly talking about your high level of extrovertedness and desire to engage and talk to people and so on.
1: And I think, you know, the opportunity for, for CUA mm-hmm. and... You know, I can so see how, and I'll call it the ADI or the banking side of it, I can so s- see in, in the next year or two the criteria that's going to be used for a successful ADI. Mm-hmm. But that's not why we're here. Mm-hmm. That's not the purpose of the mutual. And we're going through a process here at the moment to determine what the purpose is, right? Which is not going to be top down. That's going to bubble up. Yep. But it's in that discovery of whatever that purpose might be that we will find why we need to do what we are doing. Mm-hmm. It's more than just being an ADI. And I think you know, that requires a level of curiosity that, um, that I'm pretty enthusiastic about. Mm,
0: great, and so when you look now to the future, uh, five years uh, from now, you know, if we were to have this conversation, what would you hope we'd be talking about in relation to your own career? Where do you see it unfolding? Is, it, is a portfolio career something that you still have a high level of uh, appetite for?
1: Yeah, look, I think um, I'd like to do at least five years at CUA if Mm -hmm. if that is what happens. Um, I'm also very conscious that there is a lot of amalgamation needed in the industry, and I'm probably one of those curious ones, which I've proven in the rural finance job, that if the better thing for the organisation is I step aside and we merge with someone else and someone takes over, Mm -hmm. that's fine, no problem. So if that was to to occur and it's not five years, okay, Mm -hmm. that's fine. I I do quite like the Mm agri-side and I do quite like, I think the curiosity is satisfied at a directorship level when you're actually involved in a number of different sort of portfolios. Mm -hmm. So as I sit here today, two or three um, directorships at that time would be great.
0: Okay. And uh, obviously having a social contribution is important to you because of the work that you're doing uh, in the not-for-profit space. Um, And uh, and so tell us a little bit about that.
1: Look, this is probably more unconscious. And so it might actually come from the child childhood. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, when you're a member of a church and you do those sort of things, there is just this contribution to the community that's just innate. Mm. So I think that has followed me. And I think that, that is very much a part of what I'm at. I always surprise myself about what I do do at the farm. And I try to work out, why did you do that, mate? Right. Um, and, you know, the, the example I would use is that yeah, you know, we bought the farm about eight years ago of, of, of a gentleman who'd been on the on the farm for nearly 70 years. Yeah, he had a very traditional way of farming, mm-hmm. and um, he would not sell a bullock unless he got a thousand bucks for it. Well, I'm running 400 head of cattle, a thousand sheep, and I planted 50,000 trees. Right, and and I do that because I actually believe it's a much better use of the resources we have for a longer-term sustainable organisation, mm-hmm. country. Um, and so I could be get quite enthusiastic about doing those sort of things that you know because of having done that, you're actually getting much better outcomes that are sustainable for the population at large mm-hmm. and so when you think about those that are sort of alienated a little bit and you know well vision's motto is you know a child in all its fullness mm-hmm. um, what is it that you can provide to enable that child to have all its fullness mm-hmm. and, and for us it's you know typically international aid sure and and, and setting the the framework around that in the communities that they're living and so you know i think we all duty-bound in my mind anyway to be quite generous with the, the riches that we've been given mm-hmm. and so to be able to use that to help people i think is actually the right thing to do mm,
0: fantastic and so uh just to sort of finalize this conversation because uh, i know that you've got things to get on and do yeah, for those people who are typically listening to they're aspiring C-suite executives or maybe they're in a C-suite CEO role but they're looking to develop their career into bigger and better or move into a portfolio career, whatever their goals are, what would you say are some of the fundamental pieces of advice you'd offer to anybody to really accelerate their career to their full potential?
1: Look, I think it depends on why you are driven to do what you're driven to do. I actually believe that innately people are somewhat wary Mm -hmm. of those individuals that seem to be quite big on self noting self promotion Mm -hmm. Um, I'm in there because I've got the title there is there is without doubt there is an element of self promotion needed and I'm not saying and there's also this what's in it for me factor so I'm not denying that Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is keep it in check because ultimately, your long-term sustainability in the job is how well you're creating the future for that organisation. Mm-hmm. And you know you need to be galvanised. That has to be what energises you.
2: What
1: What would CUA look like in 2020, 2025? If it's still what it is today, and the world has gone has gone past you, mm. you should feel satis- you should feel fundamentally disappointed by that outcome. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you're thinking about what it can be mm-hmm. and if that gets you out of bed in the morning, that energises you and they have got the name at CO next to it, mm-hmm. <laughs> so be it. Sure. But it's a consequence. It's not yeah. a reason. Yeah. And I think um, to actually, you know, I, I want to do that job because I get paid more than I do this job or mm-hmm. I've got these words after me and I'll be respecting the community than that. Mm-hmm. Um, forget it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I see that all the time. Uh, people... I want 300. I want 400. Yeah. Well, if that's your only motivation for wanting, you know, to uh, take your career in that direction, it's pretty shallow and probably at the end of the day not going to leave you feeling particularly fulfilled. But it's very much a part of our culture, isn't it, um, uh, to keep up with the Joneses and never be satisfied. Um, so it's great feedback.
1: I think the analogy I'd use. I mean, you don't go from a senior executive at ANZ to the CEO of a government organisation for money Mm -hmm. right I think it was 67% pay reduction sure that's fine that's what it was I mean you know you you don't join rural finance and those sort of things because you're gonna get paid the same as you would at ANZ, stay at ANZ Mm -hmm. seriously
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and when you come here you get paid a bit more than what you're at in a government organisation but now we're at the ANZ side so Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't necessarily have um, money as my top three or four criteria Mm -hmm. Um, you do want to be paid well. You do want to be paid for the job that you're doing. And mm-hmm. by definition, a lot of these jobs get paid more than others. So that's nice. That's great. Sure. And I would say the financial services industry pays pretty well compared to other industries. So that's mm-hmm. good too, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not not denying any of that, but it can't be the reason for doing it.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that that's a great advice and a great way to leave this conversation. Uh, so just before we finally wind up, is there anything that we haven't discussed or anything that you just want to leave the listeners with before we call it a day?
1: No, look. I think I, I genuinely believe curiosity, and we touched on it before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would read five newspapers every day, okay. all online. Right. Um, read. I'd skim through, mm-hmm. so I'd have a sense about you know what's going on in in, in, in Europe, sure. What's, what's happening around the world, not just what's happening in Brisbane in relation to CUA. And I think that's it. And also trying to keep up to keep up with all the breaking. So blockchain, what is mm-hmm. that? Tell me more about that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that type of thing probably does your staff's head in from time to time Mm -hmm. because you say, oh, I've got this new thing, peer-to-peer, you know, and and I actually think that that is uh, an unquenchable form of curiosity is a really helpful thing to have in terms of making sure that you've got a great sense about where you can go, and I think Mm -hmm. that's a cracker to have.
0: Well, that's excellent. Well, thanks very much. Really appreciate your time, and have a fantastic afternoon.
1: Thanks, Richard. Appreciate your time.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I find it fascinating to get guests on who are relatively new into their new roles, particularly CEOs, because that initial period of getting to understand the culture of an organisation, to set and then start to implement the strategy, is a very exciting time, and also a time that's filled with a lot of challenge and opportunity. So to capture conversations with CEOs at this point in their careers, is uh, something that I really am enjoying doing and getting their unique insights, which I'm sure are of great value to people who are listening because those people then stepping into their own roles as CEO will have some ideas to lean on in terms of approaching their responsibilities in that initial period. So I look forward to having you along for future Arate podcasts. And in the meantime, have a fantastic
2: afternoon.